Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. So glad, in fact, we're going to do two good martinis. Good, good, and I think bad. Probably some crazy to it as well. But, uh, Jim, let's start with the uh, first good martini. And one of the things that House Republicans promised to do as soon as they got organized for the 118th Congress was to get going on their campaign promises. And one of those was legislation to repeal funding uh, that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act, (laughs) the Orwellian-named bill uh, from last year in the uh, democratically controlled Congress. Uh, But uh, Kevin McCarthy saying our first bill will repeal funding for 87,000 new IRS agents because the government should be here to help you, not go after you. So on Monday, the House passed the proposal in a party-line vote, 221 to 210, Not a single Democrat uh, voting for the bill to defund this buildup in the IRS. So, Jim, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. It's never even going to get to Biden's desk. And if it did, he'd probably veto it. So this is bad on that front. But in, in good ways, first of all, the Republicans did what they said they would do. And secondly, with every Democrat voting against it, you've already got your first campaign ad for 2024. You do. As you said, the basic principle, if you campaign on doing something, you should do it. You shouldn't suddenly get to Capitol Hill and say, oh, my goodness, this is so much harder. Ah, Now we realize we we thought we were going to have the Senate. Well, look, you always knew, you know, Joe Biden was going to be in office or Kamala Harris when you took control of the chamber. Um, But also I was chatting with Hugh Hewitt this morning and he was pointing out that the debt ceiling fight is coming up. And Republicans have a certain amount of leverage during the death ceiling fight. Not a ton, but a significant amount. And they can probably extract at least one major concession. Uh, A bunch of Republicans are talking about border security. And by no means would I disagree with that. But I also wonder if the funding for these 87,000 new IRS agents might actually make another good, uh, you know, concession to demand. Hugh's argument is you need to have really one central one for the simplicity and directness and clarity in your messaging. Uh, A lot of folks are saying, no, 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 you should ask for more things. I'll leave it to others to make that strategy. But I point to this and say, look, if you have leverage, by passing this first, this is one of the clearest signals. Like This this is what we House Republicans think is the most important thing we got to do. Here we are. Boom. We're in the second week of January and we got this done. Over to you, Senate. And of course, the Senate's going to ignore it. But now when we get into these debt ceiling negotiations, maybe this is something that the House Republicans should push for pretty hard and see if they can get the Biden administration and Senate Democrats to concede on that. So we'll see how this shakes out. But again, you know, getting saying what you said you would do in the first week is a good start, particularly after the headaches and divisions of that uh, selection of the speaker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And somehow the Congressional Budget Office uh, claims that this would raise the deficit by $114 billion. Uh, And you got folks like Nancy Pelosi, who, while not speaker, is still in Congress saying, uh, yeah, of course, the Republicans are just trying to protect their rich buddies and their corporate buddies. Meanwhile, Reason uh, at Reason.com citing information from Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse better known as Track, of course, because we're all familiar with that organization, uh, did a close look on audits performed by the agency in fiscal year 2022. And they concluded, quote, the taxpayer class with unbelievably high audit rates, five and a half times virtually everyone else were 
low-income wage earners taking the earned income tax credit, saying that poorest taxpayers are easy marks in an era where IRS increasingly relies upon correspondence audits yeah, but uh, doesn't have the resources to assist taxpayers or answer their questions. So, Jim, the Democratic talking points kneecapped yet again. Yeah, I'm reminded of the Willie Sutton saying, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. On paper, you know, or, you know, the rich people have more money, but they also can hire really good lawyers who can litigate the heck out of this and demonstrate that, you know, maybe the IRS is mistaken. It's a long, drawn out, frustrating process to prove uh, tax fraud, tax evasion, or not paying taxes you're supposed to. Poor people, hey, they can't afford lawyers. Easy pickings. So, you know, to paraphrase Willie Sutton, in the eyes of the Internal Revenue Service, that's where the easy money is. By the way, Greg, if you and I get audited, I guess we know why. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And there's more people who are not rich than are rich. Uh, I guess it depends on your definition, but according to the IRS uh, and certainly track, uh, that's certainly the case. All right, on to our second good martini now. And this is qualified because the Biden administration tried to do something really dumb and insane here. But they got called out for it, and that's why it's a good martini. So I first saw it in the New York Post, I think it must have been Monday night, saying the Biden administration was taking aim at gas stoves. And why? Well, because some research indicated that there's a 12.7% connection between gas stoves and childhood asthma. Well, I'm not sure exactly how strong that study is. Others have strongly disputed that. Yesterday on Twitter, he had all sorts of folks, mainly on the right, saying you'll get my gas stove when you pry it from my cold, dead hands, which led uh, Richard Trumka Jr., son of the former and late labor boss, uh, to tweet out, uh, to be clear, the Consumer Product Safety Commission isn't coming for anyone's gas stoves. Regulations will apply to new products. And he talks about the tax incentives Yet again, in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you can get an $840 rebate if you don't get a gas stove. And so the uh, outrage continued, which led the chairman of the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, to say, to be clear, I am not looking, not looking to ban gas stoves and has no proceeding to do so. What the CPSC is doing is researching gas emissions in stoves and exploring new ways to address any health risks, and on and on it goes. Jim, the war on natural gas continues. I'm not sure why, uh, other than the fact that uh, they just don't want fossil fuels anymore, regardless of how much cleaner they they are than some of the others. Uh, And as a result, we're going to be poorer and colder when we have fewer energy options. But uh, basically, they got caught here with their hand in the green energy agenda cookie jar, and now they got to crawl their way back out. Yeah, uh, I was one of my colleagues. Uh, it might have been uh, Dominic Pino made the observation. You don't, you haven't. Or you might, I think actually it was Dan McLaughlin said you haven't seen a win this clear and this fast for the right since Nina Jenkowitz and the <laughs> Misinformation Governance Board over at the DHS. This kind of full fledged, you know, administration retreat. Um, a couple of things I've been thinking about. We, you and I t- talk about energy on this podcast pretty regularly. And it's you know, kind of emerged from this relatively obscure topic to kind of much more front and center because of its relation to environmentalism and the Greens and the Green New Deal and the uh, argument about climate change and such. And I was thinking about how lots of folks on the left want you to want your electricity to come from uh, alternative energy sources, solar, wind, things like that, and not from those bad, unclean fossil fuels and certainly not nuclear plants. 
there's no carbon emissions, but still, nuclear plants <laughs> are bad and scary because Jane Fonda made a movie about them back in the 1970s, and thus we can't have them anymore. That's the, the philosophy at work over there. The thing is, is that you turn on a light, you don't really think too much about where that energy comes from, and it's not like you can tell the electricity is any different from whether it comes from a nuclear plant or a coal plant or a natural gas plant or uh, wind or solar. It's not like your your light bulb is any brighter, depending on the source of the energy. It's all pretty much the same. So it's very tough to get people fired up about that. But if for those of us who want to say, hey, no, fossil fuels aren't that bad. In fact, they're you know uh, relatively carbon uh, efficient, and they're the cheapest, and they're the easiest way. And oh, by the way, it's better for cooking. You know, natural gas, you can see that. Everybody has seen those blue flames. Um, and by the way, if you've cooked on both, you know, maybe your mileage your mileage may vary. But I find cooking on a, on a gas stove easier, better you know, kind of questions of evenness of cooking of a electric stove, kind of wondering how hot it is, things like that. So, you know, natural gas, you know, you want it higher, you turn it up higher, you turn it lower. This is a form of energy that people are intimately familiar with because they use it probably every day or at least every, you know, almost every day. So uh, the other observation from my colleague, Charlie Cook, that I thought was really worthwhile, he pointed out, he did a search and he found out that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, had never tweeted about stoves ever before. But when she did, she had this tone of like, oh, as, as Charlie describes it, her tone was one of weary condescension towards the bitter enders whom she's been trying to inform for years. It's cultish, as uh, as Charlie points points out. And he says it's like, this is like this phenomenon that all of a sudden something comes out of nowhere. And the idea is like, ah, oh, all of you people who've been using natural gas stoves, we've been trying to tell you it's dangerous for you. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> and somebody pointed out AOC was cooking on a gas stove in one of her Instagram videos. So this it's really weird how all of a sudden something gets declared the next big thing that is bad and you must stop it and you must get rid of it. Uh, when it uh, like two days earlier, it was completely normal. Greg, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, Barack Obama running on how marriage is between a man and a woman back in 2008. <laughs> All of a sudden he changes his mind and having the opinion he had yesterday is homophobic and bad and evil. You know, but it wasn't bad when he was doing it. It was just a necessary, you know, step for political requirements and things like that. Thankfully, uh, the Biden administration is backing down on this. I do think they looked at the, the political scene and said, we don't need this fight right here. But I think it's very clear this push is going to come from various corners of the left. The idea that somehow if you're using a gas stove, you're part of the problem. You're bad. Nobody's going to give AOC any grief for hers. But the responsible choice is to use an electric stove, even if you feel like your food doesn't cook as well and you just don't feel like changing the natural gas line you've had in your house since it was built God knows how many years ago. Yeah, they're just going to pile on the incentives to not uh, get a gas stove and make it uh, prohibitive for people to manufacture them uh, if uh, if the regulations get too stiff. The thing I find uh, fun about this, Jim, I assume their alternative is the electric range. Guess how that gets powered in most cases? Coal. Mm. <laughs> they can talk about how they're building up the renewables. It's going to be a real long time, if ever, probably never, uh, that the renewables can ever match uh, what's happening through electricity right now with coal. It reminds me of that photo op they had in uh, Michigan. I think it was with Governor Whitmer uh, last year or the year before. Where they were uh, touting the electric cars. And one of the reporters actually asked, so the electricity that you're using to plug these cars in, uh, where's that come from? And most of them didn't know. And then one person's like, coal. <laughs> so, they don't think even one step beyond their talking points, which is just. The uh, electricity fairy. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> you turned the switch on. What do you mean, where does it come from? The wall. All right. On to our bad slash crazy now. And Jim, the transportation challenges just keep piling up. But thankfully, we have an eminently qualified Secretary of Transport. What? Oh, oh, we don't. We don't actually have an eminently qualified Secretary of Transportation uh, in Pete Buttigieg. But, you know, from the supply chain crisis to the Southwest airline fiasco over the holidays. And then today, there was a brief ground stop across the country due to the failure of the FAA's notice to air mission system, which alerts pilots and other personnel about airborne issues and other delays at airports across the country. And so, Jim, it's not like it's Pete Buttigieg's fault that the computers went down, but this seems to be happening in more and more ways in our transportation sector. And so the problems keep piling up. And I think it's pretty clear we have less and less confidence that uh, he's got the know-how and the experience to deal with it. Yeah, I talked about this a bit at the tail end of today's morning jolt. Now, it was almost inevitable that we were going to have some sort of bumps in the road in the process of moving out of the pandemic, right? You know, you go from uh, everybody staying at home, nobody taking any air travel, um, much less demand for certain goods, much more demand for other goods. Remember the the great toilet uh, paper rush of early 2020? <laughs> You know, we were definitely going to have some challenges. And I don't think, you know, the American people have unreasonable expectations, but they, they really have piled up. Um, most notably, the ports and the supply chain issues on the West Coast. Uh, but we also had, you know, the record gas prices, which kicked into that trucker shortages, both truck drivers and actual available chassis and such. Um, all of that contributing to empty shelves. Then this summer, it was, you know, three years of people being pent up. There was a revenge tourism, the idea that people wanted to get out and fly. Everybody returned to the airline, to the airports, only to find that a lot of these airlines we had bailed out had uh, taken given buyouts to all of their pilots and were short on pilots and short on staff and had all kinds of delays and problems and headaches and all that kind of stuff. There was a narrowly averted freight rail strike uh, that Buttigieg took a back seat to Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. We can argue about how whether that was the right move. Ultimately, they did avoid the strike um, after two kind of going up to the brink twice. In fact, the first time, uh, several routes and several uh, depots and such kind of started the shutdown process. They basically were like, look, we don't, we're not taking any deliveries after Friday. Don't send them. So you already saw kind of that slowdown in rail freight traffic. Leading up to that, most recently the Southwest debacle, and now this, where all of a sudden, you know, coast to coast, we can't have planes taken off because of a problem with the software of notifying pilots. Now, not all of that is the fault of Pete Buttigieg. In fact, when Pete Buttigieg got a lot of grief for being on paternity leave when the backup log was building up in the West Coast ports, I had a bit of a, you know, bit of a disagreement with some of my conservative commentator brethren who were eager to scapegoat Buttigieg to say, I mean, if he was in the office, do you think it would have been fixed? Really? You have that much faith in this guy? You know, I'm, a, I'm not going to dispute that being away from the office for two months and nobody notices. And, you know, that, that didn't look good for him. But I have a very I think it was kind of overestimating the value of Pete Buttigieg to sorting out these sorts of logistical problems. Well, as things have stacked up week by week, month by month, it does kind of feel like um, people we are having more problems in our transportation system than we're used to. And they're attracting more headlines. You know, obviously, this morning's full ground stop is the biggest attention, but the, separately, there was this second one of a report of an Amtrak train that was basically stuck for nearly a day 
in rural South Carolina because of a derailment of a freight train. And apparently, what you know, the um, the DC to Florida trip, the auto train that a lot of folks take to go down to Disney World, usually takes 17 hours. It's not fast. It's overnight. You sleep on the train, all that kind of stuff. Well, apparently, it took more than 35 hours. And people were calling and saying, "This is, uh, I feel like a hostage, right? You know, can I get off the train? What can I do here?" And of course, you're in rural South Carolina. You don't really have a lot of options there. So it just it seems like these problems in transportation are stacking up and people asking, where is the transportation secretary? Why is he running around the country acting like he's doing a, a presidential campaign? Why is he hanging out with James Corbin? Why is he um, flying on private jets? You know, this guy was supposed to be the, the boy wonder. And now all of a sudden we keep having these problems stacking up and creating headaches for the rest of the administration. Now, one of the things that makes this interesting is going back to the 2020 Democratic primary, there are a bunch of liberals and progressives who hate Pete Buttigieg. I know if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're conservative and you probably don't think very highly of Pete Buttigieg. There are lefties out there who hate Pete Buttigieg, probably because of the ties to McKinsey Consulting and probably because they see him as the embodiment of corporate Democratic Party, neoliberalism, kind of this idea of a liberalism that is very comfortable with the established economic order and elitism and things like that. And thus they seethe about Pete Buttigieg and they rip into him every chance they get. And Greg, when I see this, my attitude is pass the popcorn. Um, <laughs> but I kind of, I just got also notice it like, well, you know, if they're making these arguments, the same arguments we are, dear Biden administration, maybe he just is this small city mayor who just really knows how to, you know, he, he knows how to ace the interview. He knows how to do great presentations. All that McKinsey years, all the practice paid off. But when it comes to actual problem solving, Maybe Pete Buttigieg isn't that good at it. It certainly seems like he's more interested in talking about paternity leave and uh, all of these social touchy-feely issues rather than the actual hard problems in front of him at the Department of Transportation. Uh, so I, I don't know if his days are numbered. Biden does not seem like the kind of guy who's eager to fire anybody he appoints. Um, Biden does not seem like the kind of guy who's likely to notice a lot of these problems. <laughs> but I think an objective observer would look at that and say, gee, you know, he really, you know, the transportation sector really does generate a lot more headaches than you'd expect for this administration, even accounting for the, you know, lingering after effects of the pandemic. That's true. Although Buttigieg said he's not running for Senate in Michigan because he's got too much to do and he's completely focused on this job. So if Biden's not well, getting the first rid of him, part's true. <laughs> he does have a lot to do. Whether he's totally focused, eh, we'll see. <laughs> Jim, or maybe, like, maybe that's a confession. He's totally focused. And this is what we're getting, folks. <laughs> Jim, I'm just trying to imagine being stuck on a train for 35 hours. I'm thinking even Bing Crosby and his buddies would get tired of singing about snow after uh, <laughs> about half that time and just start throwing things. But uh, I don't know. Glad I wasn't there and glad everybody finally got to wherever they were going. Wow. All right. On to Thursday. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge, huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.